0: Welcome to BitCast on Podcast One, the video game podcast with the
1: Axeman. Welcome back to the show. Way back in Bit64, I mentioned something in all the games that I got exposed to during 2018, that one of them was Earthbound. And I briefly touched upon my feelings toward Earthbound, how it's well regarded as a cult classic but it's a game that I don't really have much of an attachment to. We never had Earthbound growing up, and when I did get my hands on the game, I only played it for a short time before losing interest. And if I could be honest, I kind of have this long-running tendency to be really apprehensive whenever people get hyped up. A lot of people talk about how much they love this game. That made me just a little bit resistant to it. In my experience... EarthBound is a game that nobody likes. You love EarthBound. You you never like it, you just love it. Unless you hate it. Now, I don't hate this game by any means, but I feel like a lot of it is kind of lost on me, probably because I don't have a history with it. So for that reason, I brought back a previous guest from the Frogger episode, because he's the EarthBound guy in my social circle, as I'm told. Say hi. Hello,
0: everyone, again. Uh, It's nice to be back on the show. Like uh, Alex mentioned, I'm Connor. I was on the uh, Frogger episode. Um, And I really like EarthBound. It's um, one of my top ten video games of all time.
1: Yeah, it's always someone's top ten, or top five, or even their number one. It's always within the top ten anytime someone brings it up. like If it's not on someone's top ten list, they haven't played Earthbound. That seems to be my takeaway. This is a game that people just adore, and the reason he's here on the show with me is because I need someone to walk me through it and kind of help me understand where this hype comes from. Because I I get what the game could be going for, but it just doesn't reach me. And I think maybe it's possible that there's just something I hadn't considered or something. So that's the angle of this episode. Uh, I think for a lot of people
0: on the internet who love the game, it's a game that they stumbled upon Uh, or they chanced upon in their childhood that they picked up, really liked, uh, and then it always just kind of stuck with them. Uh, That wasn't the case for me. Uh, My first gaming console was uh, Game Boy Advance, uh, then I got GameCube, and then I kind of worked my way backwards from there. Uh, So I didn't have a Super Nintendo until I was well into um, middle school, high school. Uh, Earthbound, I- I've always kind of been aware of through the Smash Brothers series. Um, I'm thinking
1: maybe we should give a, a primer on Earthbound because I think everyone who would watch this already knows what Earthbound is, but just for clarity and to cover all our bases, maybe we should explain what Earthbound is a little bit first. Certainly. And Earthbound is one of those series that's
0: really hard to kind of condense, but if you want a really, really high-level version of it, it's a uh, contemporary uh, Japanese-style RPG. It takes place in uh, the year 1990X and is kind of a send-up of uh, of pop culture and uh, kind of social conventions and such of the time. Uh, it starts out in a pastiche of, of uh, suburban America, and it kind of becomes uh, almost a road trip sort of game where you go through all these different towns. Uh, you go through. Uh, there's a, a segment where you're in where you're in England, and you go uh, you go through Stonehenge. I think that's Scotland. Uh, there's a segment where you go to uh, an
1: Egyptian-style town. I, I guess. I guess it's also worth mentioning that. Since this is going to be explaining all of Earthbound, there will be spoilers, which... It's a really old game by now, but I, I just feel like I have to warn for spoilers. Sure. It's like Philip kept giving me flack for it whenever I did that, when we recorded another episode together. <laughs> sure,
0: sure. So the crux of the the game, the story is that you're on a mission from an alien from the future to... Uh, go around to the eight Your Sanctuaries around the world and collect the musics of the Your Sanctuaries in the Soundstone, which is supposed to help your character achieve enlightenment. And
1: Your Sanctuary, Y O U R, these, uh, as I gather, they're just these wonders of the world, and for some reason they have a special significance to Ness. Correct. Uh, Ness, of course, being the
0: uh, main character, or whatever you name him. He's Ness. Um, he's Ness. The Your sanctuaries are kind of set up as just naturally occurring phenomena, uh, no matter how little sense that makes. Like, the first one you run into is a giant footprint and uh, a well that's formed around a giant footprint in a mountain. But in visiting each of these places, defeating the Sanctuary Guardian and uh, attuning and Himself to the uh, your sanctuary, uh, Ness is uh, Ness invokes memories of his childhood or his youth. He shouldn't have to think back that far, he's still pretty young. No, and that's uh, that's one of the interesting things to me about the game is the character, the characters are all very young. Um, the world itself is sort of pitched as there's a weird sort of logic to it that makes sense if you're a kid. There's all these fantastic images or crazy events going on that uh, as an adult just seem like complete nonsense, uh, very surrealistic, but as a kid, you just kind of take that stuff for granted. Like, oh, of course there's a bug alien from the future that wants me to go on a special mission. Uh, Of course there's a uh, pack of zombies attacking a town uh, that's all gather in this evil tent that are being led by a mean pack of vomit. It's just all this weird stuff that if you try to sit and analyze, it's like, wow, this is really freaking weird. But as a kid, it just, sure, sure, why not? And that's, uh, that's a lot of the fun to me in the first place, is that there's all these crazy images going on, and it all kind of makes sense uh, in its world. It's just a world where these bizarre things can happen, and it adds a sort of childlike uh,
1: nostalgic appeal to it. Are you saying that the world in Earthbound is just... We only get to see it how a child would see it? We don't see it for what it really is?
0: Well, that's one way to interpret it. That Um, seemed
1: to be what you were going for. I I
0: think it's... uh, I don't think it's literally... Uh, this is Ness imagining well, I mean, just, everything. No, I mean, just, but, like, a filter.
1: Like, like this is um, kind of a, a how a child would rationalize everything being a thing.
0: I think I have a lot of fun taking the bizarre images that you get in Earthbound super literally. Like, uh, oh, of course you're fighting a melting dolly's clock. Uh, or, of course you're fighting a uh, fireplug. Um... The, these are just things that happen in this world, but uh, I think if you want to take a look at it on a on a, a metafictional level, it works as uh, just this is a world that embodies the sort of logicless childhood fantasies, like the the whole thing where um, where so you you, uh, you you're told you have to go into this mission, so you go home and tell your mom and dad that you're going to be gone for a while on your mission and your mom agrees to cover for you at school. Like that in no realistic uh world uh would that ever happen, but it makes perfect sense to do so in this uh in this childhood uh or in this world that embodies
1: uh the childhood experience. You're saying that the entire game runs on kid logic. Exactly. Okay. Like,
0: there's no reason why uh, your kid sister, Tracy, should have a part-time job uh, as a call lady for a delivery service. But she does, and no one really questions it. It's just a thing that happens.
1: Hmm. Well, if I could put it bluntly, I always felt that the reason people liked this game, other than the final boss leaving an impression, is that they like the game because... Like, ooh, it's quirky. Everyone says weird, silly things, and they do silly things. And I come into it years later, and I think that's true, but you know, I've already been exposed to comedic games elsewhere, so what is it about Earthbound, other than maybe being one of the first ones? But even then, it was never that prominent when it came out, so it couldn't have been that. That was my take on the whole thing. And I think that's a fair take. Um, I know a lot of people
0: uh, tend to see that uh, uh, in the game, certainly going off of uh, some of the games inspired by EarthBound. You see a lot of people kind of cling to that more uh, random style of humor. Uh, Things just sort of happen. But uh, I don't really see EarthBound as being random so much as being extremely specific in
1: its humor. Well I, I didn't mean random, I just meant weird, eccentric, silly well sure but uh but uh
0: bear with me so i think I think a lot of the charm behind Earthbound is that uh when it makes humor or when it makes a joke, it's not just it's not just this really off the wall thing it's again this off the wall thing that has a sort of internal logic to it or it's kind of. Constantly setting itself up for uh, either a visual joke or a verbal joke or or uh, a pun or something like that, like um uh like, like there's a bit in uh, there's the bit in Forside where you uh, have to work your way into the executive suite, but the only way you can get in is if you bribe the doorman with uh with uh, trout flavored yogurt. Uh, well, that who that ever heard of trout flavored yogurt you've never run into it in this world so on and so forth so of course you have to leave the building but as soon as you step outside you get a call from your inventor buddy who says that for some reason he's just invented this trout flavored yogurt and he's gonna have it delivered to you uh it's just this really it it almost comes across as a sort of joke of uh, or a riff on a, a lot of your conventions of having to get the MacGuffin. Well, what do you need to do in order to get past this this part? Uh, I don't know, you need uh, a key or something. Well, how do you get the key? Well, I don't know, you talk to this NPC. Well, they they sort of uh, expedite the process. One, by having the, the key, you need to get just this completely asinine thing. And two, the game just gives you the key right away. It makes its own uh, mechanical joke out of this uh, exchange. And there's uh, just lots of pockets of little moments like that. Uh, not just from a, a mechanical per, uh, perspective either, just a lot of the way the game thinks about itself. There's a, a segments where you're going through an excavation site, and uh, you know there's a series of five mole bosses that you have to fight. Uh, for the moles. Uh, so you talk to the first one, and he talks about how he's the third strongest mole that you have to face. So you get into the fight, and in the background there's a wavering number three. Okay, so I when I first played it, I thought, okay, well I've I must be doing these out of order, but that's okay. I'll uh, maybe I'll get it right next time. So I talk to the next one who also insists that he's the third strongest mole. Again, he has this spiel about how he's the third strongest. You get into this fight with him, and you have the wavering background again of number three, and you beat him up. By the end of the dungeon, you fought... When you're talking to the fifth mole, uh, he tells you you fought the strongest, the second strongest, the weakest, and the second weakest mole. Now you're ready to face me, the third strongest mole. Uh, Again, it's kind of a riff on the whole... uh, uh, having to work your way up to it. It's playing off of the player's expectations of there being a numerical or a linear progression to uh, to exploring this dungeon. But instead, it makes its own humor by defying convention and uh, sort of creating its own rationale. Well, this is just a world where there's a quintet of moles who all think they're
1: the most mediocre I mean, I kind of, I I was kind of on board when you said, oh, they're playing with the expectations and playing on the formula, but you keep losing me every time you go back to a, oh, this is a world where this is a thing, or this is a thing, and like, that feels like a very face value and kind of shallow takeaway to have from it that it just doesn't have any effect on me to acknowledge that this is like, I can see this is a world where that happens. I have eyes. And that that's not a shot at you, that's like me having trouble with appreciating the game. Sure, sure. Uh, well,
0: let's see. Well, oh, I actually have written down here, well, let's see. <laughs> um, uh, another thing that I really like about the game is the, uh, is the specific choice of language that comes with it. Uh, it's kind of a very casual game to, to read, uh. And you know me pretty well, Alex. You know uh, what my writing style is like. I kind of take a lot of cues from this game just in its very casual uh, way of uh, talking to the player. Like, you go you go look into a... Uh, go fishing around in a garbage can, as one does, and uh, the game says, Ness, uh, Ness searched into the garbage can. Well, let's see. Well, there seems to be a hamburger inside. Ness takes it. Or you open a, a wicker basket and the game goes, "Whoa! There's a pizza inside."
1: A very empathetic narrator.
0: Exactly, exactly. Or uh, the bit early on when you're uh, when you're exploring the cliffside with uh, your neighbor Pokey uh, oh, I hate and Pokey. Well, I I do too, but he's kind of fun to hate. But Porky is supposedly uh, a party member. He's supposedly helping you out, but he's just kind of there. He pretends to cry uh, when it's his turn, or he hides behind you, or he acts all innocent. He's useless. Exactly. The game could just easily say Porky does nothing, or... Pork just stands there, but it's all these very specific ways of doing nothing. The flavor text. Yeah, the game thrives off of its flavor text. Another one, uh, a bit later on, well, with with all the enemies, uh, the game has a different way of describing how you defeat each different archetype of enemy. Feral animals that are attacking you when you defeat them, it says uh, the runaway dog became tame, or something like that when you defeat a robot it's the robot was reduced to scrap all right when you de- when you defeat a zombie it's the zombie returns to the, the dust of the earth the, the sequel continues that, yeah. at least in the translation the fan translation mhm right uh and that that's sort of a signature thing with all of the earth- earthbound games even uh, earthbound beginnings does that to an extent
1: a lot of the earthbound inspired uh, games try to follow in that footprint too so the uh, thing that... about earthbound is it's aggressively 90s. It's, it's like RPG, but with a 90s coat of paint run through a kid logic filter.
0: I think that's, uh, that's a lot of it. Um, I, I do find that, um, that in dating itself, uh, Earthbound, paradoxically, has become a little timeless. Like, uh, if, Earthbound was supposed to be modern day, it wouldn't really work because, well, all these these things that it, they're referencing or they're poking fun at, uh, those would just feel dated. Heck, the game itself felt dated when it came out. Uh, it was released the same year as uh, Final Fantasy VI, and as a straight role-playing game, um, mechanically, Earthbound is leaps and bounds behind uh, what the kind of story and presentation you got in Final Fantasy VI. But, because it's uh, because it's striving to be a very specific time period, and uh, it's trying to invoke a lot of very specific uh, emotional beats. I think it's a game that benefits from being dated and like a time has capsule. kind of aged better by it. Yeah, exactly. It's an excellent time capsule of the era. Hmm.
1: But I I, I can see that leading into why people would like it for what it is, but why is it so beloved well after its time? I mean, let, let me give you a bit of my experience with EarthBound last year that got me on this train, is that I watched a Let's Play of EarthBound. Chugga Conroy, he replayed the game for his 10th anniversary because that was his first Let's Play, wanted to do better, and I watched almost every episode, and he just threw, like, all these fun facts and trivia... Like, like the culture surrounding this game, and, like, mentions of the rare bits of merchandise there are, and the, the pre-game blueprints for things that were happening, stuff like that. There is just, like, I don't want to say a cult around this game, because it sounds like I'm dissing them, and I feel like I've been negative in this episode. But there's just this, well, I already said the word culture, but culture around the game, and... I just think it's a it's a pretty cool, kind of quirky RPG. Like, I, I like some of the things in it. I like the style it has going for it, but I just don't get this community it's created. Well,
0: I, I think that's, uh, and honestly, I'll sort of agree with you, it's one of those games that, it's almost weird to me that it's become as big as it has. But I think that's kind of a testament to um, the, the difference between uh, what the game looks like or how the game presents itself and what the game actually comes across as. Uh, a, a lot of what I've been talking about, the, um, uh, the humor, the writing, that sort of thing, those are things that uh, tend to be fairly immediate uh, and, come to, and present itself more immediately when uh, you encounter the game. Uh, even in the Smash Brothers series, um, Earthbound just feels like, well, this is a very weird game where very weird things happen. And that's true, but one of the things that you don't really get until you start playing it is how emotional of a game it is. Uh, it's a very emotional uh, series as a whole, really. Um, and where I, whereas I think that's a bit more obvious in Earthbound Beginnings and Mother 3, uh because both of them tend to go for a more uh, tragic note with a lot of their uh, plot beats, um, I find uh, I find that Earthbound itself also has a lot of very uh, very slow, very genuinely emotional moments. Like uh, there's a couple segments where you're going along and an NPC will offer to uh, will offer some uh, some tea for you, and you can sit down and have tea with them. And the way the game presents that is it cuts to what's basically a uh, text crawl for about five minutes, reflecting, reminiscing on all the adventures you've gone uh, through up to this point. And it's just kind of a quiet moment. Um, I forget the name of the track that they play for that. Uh, um, Oh, actually, it's called You've Come So Far. And it's just kind of the sweet moment for you to to think about everything you've done and and think about where you're going. And it's just a kind of a sweet little moment the game presents itself. Or when you uh, when you go to the your Sanctuaries, uh, you have this moment where Ness communes with uh, the Earth. He collects the melody and the soundstone. And the game interjects with uh, a little bit of narration of uh, Ness... Uh, Ness remembered his first laugh, or, or Ness felt uh, the remembered the warmth of being held in his mother's arms, or something like that. And it's just these very quiet or these very simple but very um, resonant moments that just kind of make you sit and think. Um, okay, I've got a, a, couple, I, a couple things noted here.
1: I will say that I did like. At the end, well, not the end, but after the eighth sanctuary. It was either right before or right after Magicant, but it did come across as like a rather empowering moment, almost literally, with Ness just like harmonizing with the eight wonders of the world, and it just felt like, uh, I guess, to compare it to another contemporary RPG, Persona. It feels kind of like a similarly empowering moment like when a character in one of those games would get their second form of their persona or something. You know, the moment where all the power just converges onto Ness and like like mm-hmm. he he's like reborn as like the chosen one or something.
0: That that sequence as as a whole is fantastic, but I love that it's capstoned with this um with this moment where Ness shoots up like uh, thirty levels or something, and it's just super empowering, uh, both mechanically and ju- and again with the writing, there's all these emotional beats of how you've overcome so much, and you still have more to go. But it's just this very um, empowering segment.
1: Yeah. So, like that—that that is one thing where I, I probably do get to appreciate what the game is going for. So it's not like I'm completely immune to the game or anything. Because, <laughs> like like I said, I don't hate this game or anything. It's a
0: very weird game to kind of approach. And I want to say a lot of the people who who don't like it, of which you've said you're not one of them, uh, but I think a lot of the people who don't like it um, are kind of turned off by a lot of that, uh, that, that barrier of entry of, oh, this is such a weird game or what have you which i think is why you get a lot of those really extreme um takes on the series you get people who just aren't fond of or are turned off by some of the aesthetic and you get the people who soldiered on through it and came to appreciate a lot of the uh, a lot of the little moments here and there
1: in the game do you think it's a game that benefits from playing through it yourself more than watching someone else play it Absolutely. Okay, so I I basically just stunted myself then.
0: Well, uh like it, it was years between the time I discovered the game uh and learned all of the um major plot beats uh and the time that I actually got around to playing it myself. Um so, and even even then I still felt like I got a ton out of it um emotionally. It's very different between uh, between experiencing it indirectly and experiencing it directly. And I don't think the two... Uh, I don't think doing one necessarily negates the effectiveness of the other.
1: I do think... I remember, I did play this game once, and what happened was the birds outside Ness's house were beating me up, and I, I was already kind of busy that day, I think. So it was already kind of starting on a hard note, because this is a hard game at first. I'm not going to... I'm not going to sugarcoat that. It, it's a hard game at first until, like, Paula joins you. And and then sometimes they'll still tie hands behind your back every so often. And I feel like that is a worthy barrier of entry for some people.
0: Mm-hmm. It is a very slow burn to, to build up to it. It, it takes a bit... Uh, it, it's weird to me, the early game, when you're still in Onet, and even when you first get to Tucson... Um, uh, because it is just Ness going solo through a lot of it. And the game presentation very much feels like it wants a second party member early on. Uh, A lot of the, uh, the early encounters, it's just, just strings of, um, uh, when when you're fighting the, the gang members and when you're fighting the police, uh, the O'Net police, uh, you go through the first boss, uh. I forget if, um, yeah, because you do peaceful rest valley before you get Paula, so uh, you're dealing with the territorial oaks, which uh, explode when defeated and deal a crap ton of damage to to Ness, um, and that's uh, a lot of that is very slowly uh, figuring out the uh, the mechanics of the game, which, uh, to be fair, I think uh, I do think a lot of the game's mechanics are neat. Uh, the the rolling health meter in particular is really cool because it l- lends to a lot of really uh, d- intense, dramatic moments in the middle of a fight where you're hit by an attack that's going to defeat Ness, so you have to quickly work through the menus and heal him up, uh, and you can just save yourself in the nick of time. There's a lot of really cool gameplay moments like that, but that's a system that you also have to learn and teach yourself.
1: Yeah, uh, So I, I feel like... The sequel kind of refines it a bit more too. Uh, yeah, Mother Three um,
0: certainly its presentation lends itself a lot more neatly to uh, to the uh, to the more experimental style of Earthbound's gameplay, largely because the uh, it divvies itself off into very experimental uh, story beats. It, it experiment it plays a lot with some of those. Uh, some of those mechanics uh, for narrative purposes, and I think that's really neat. Uh, and I'll definitely concede that that that's, uh, again, that's something that Earthbound feels like it's wanting, is, uh, is just a little bit more support uh, in the early game. Even in Earthbound Beginnings, uh, you had um, uh, pretty early on uh, Ninten, uh, the main character of that game, got a temporary party member to... Uh, help him out with uh, one of the earlier uh, one of the earlier dungeons, uh, and that does a lot to kind of kind of bide you over during the wait until you get that first party member, like a third into the game or something.
1: Yeah, and I will say though, for my gripes about the game tying a hand behind your back so often, and for Ness getting like bruised around every corner, that does actually make the journey to his 30-level level-up near the end a lot more meaningful, though I will say that it's kind of undermined by the fact that everyone else is still kind of a weakling in comparison. You go back to invading, aliens invading Onet, and... Granted, I haven't seen too many playthroughs of this game, but everyone I've seen has had a lot of difficulty with some of the end game stuff, so it feels like that that massive level up isn't really giving you super power, it's giving you a chance.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I don't know if that was really my experience with it, um,
1: but... This, this isn't fair for me to go on about since I haven't played it myself, so that's probably an intangible thing that's just up to the different people playing it. So I'll, I'll concede that maybe I'm being unfair. Well, no, I, I
0: just think that's... Um, I can kind of see where that's coming from, though. Um, part of it, I think, comes down to the approach that you have to take with uh, each of the characters. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the interesting things, I think, about Earthbound is that Ness is essentially the support character to the rest of the party. He's the one who has all the major heal spells. Uh, He has most of the support skills. Um, When you get uh, Paula and uh, Jeff in your party, both of them are far more offensive oriented. Paula being the game's black mage, and Jeff being. um, Jeff doesn't have PSI, but he has items, so uh, he's he's very reliant on. On using items for various effects or various attacks, but all of what he does is again largely offensive, which means that you kind of have to learn to use Ness as a support unit. Uh, After you go through, after you go through the magicant segment, uh, and Ness gains his uh, Ness levels up to uh, insane heights. Well, your main heavy hitters are still the same level. You just have a stronger support unit. Um, so you kind of have to learn to um, to make better use of Ness's ability to provide support rather than it just being a straight uh, power trip for the rest of the game.
1: Okay, so you're never meant to just sick Ness on anyone, not even after Magicant.
0: It's tempting to do so since I think by that time you'll have uh, PSI and Omega or whatever your favorite thing was. Um, but you end up burning out pretty fast if you do go that route. So
1: it, it's a balancing act uh, very much. I feel like that's a little disappointing to learn that that 30 level level up isn't just the game rewarding you for persevering, it's just okay now, be smart with Ness or else you're gonna mess up the ending well i um hmm, I don't know if I
0: really see it as that either um you compared it to uh you, you compared it to uh persona before, so uh let me make a comparison to that uh in persona. Uh, your main character is uh, with since he has the power of the wild card his role in combat is very adaptable uh, in, in many cases uh, his function is more defined by which party members you have in the group uh, if you decide to have um, have one of the game's dedicated healers then that affords you to let the protagonist be take a more offensive role uh, if the rest of the party is more spell oriented you might have the protagonist Uh, focus more on physical attacks. The game presents growth of the the main character mechanically through uh, upgrading or promoting his ability to be a support unit or be um, a um, jack-of-all-trades. And I kind of think that's the same thing that Earthbound was going for, where uh, Ness, he can do all these things. It's generally smart to use him as a support unit, but... Uh, After the Magicant segment, you have a lot more options for experimentation with Ness. Uh, And so you can kind of
1: play a bit with trading off. Do you, though? Do you, though? Because, you know, Paula and Pooh and Jeff, they're always your party members. You can't swap them out for, like, oh, hey, the dog's back or anything. (laughs) Well,
0: um... Sort of, I think. Um, uh, you're right in that uh, by that time of the game, your party is locked. But I think I think it sort of benefits from Pooh also being a bit of a jack of all trades. So, uh,
1: so I've, you can uh, I've got some words for Pooh, and it has nothing to do with his ridiculous name.
0: But. I always feel silly bringing him up in mixed conversation. Yeah. Uh, yes for the for the viewers at home, uh, one of your party members' default name is Pooh.
1: It's spelled like you think it is mm-hmm. but where I'm going with this is that now again this is something I would need to have felt for myself to really say but I'm gonna trust the guy who plays this a lot on YouTube. When I when he tells me that Pooh isn't really that great of a party character, like his role is largely redundant a lot of times. In fact, when they get when he learns Starstorm Omega, there is exactly one enemy variation because this is he learns it past the point of no return. There is exactly one enemy variation where he could use it on and it wouldn't be redundant because every other enemy is just. Not really feasible due to an exploding enemy being there, or there only being one enemy, or being the final boss, or something. That's just an example, but just Pooh in general just doesn't. It seems like he's not as thought out as well as he could have been. Is what I'm gathering about him. Oh, I should also mention that th- they give him the like the foreign food preference, which just makes it kind of difficult to heal him. And the fact that most of, his, like, his only set of equipment, they're all, or, or at least just the weapon, I don't know about the rest of it, all very hard to drop. I think it is just the,
0: uh, uh I should have looked up the names, uh, the sword, uh, that's really hard to get, yeah. But, um, <clears throat> I don't know, uh, one, I have to admit that I kind of love that Pooh is such an awkward character to use, um, it, it just is kind of charming to have this character that you sort of have to remember, oh, yeah, uh, if I give him food to heal, he'll heal less from it because he doesn't like eating hamburgers, he prefers just drinking water, or, oh, yeah, um... Uh, if Pooh equips any conventional weaponry, his stats will actually go down. He can only use the stuff that he was trained to use. Or, oh yeah, Pooh has this uh, special ability to mirror an enemy, but that means that he's mirroring the enemy's AI as well, so that kind of limits his functionality in a fight. Like, I get how that would be frustrating, but I kind of actually just find a lot of
1: that really charming. Um, Just... Yeah, but that, that comes at the expense of the player enjoying it because you know that's kind of funny the first time and it's neat on paper but at the the end of the day that means you just can't count on Pooh for a lot of things well i also don't know if that's the case um uh
0: mechanically Pooh ends up being another jack of all trades uh he kind of splits the difference in a lot of ways between ness and paula uh he has um uh, he has both uh, offensive and support spells um like i think he has uh p s i freeze uh p s i lightning um he has a lot of the healing as well, so he can be your off healer uh as you mentioned he gains the star storm spells uh even though he gets omega super late he still gets um alpha pretty early on
1: so you still have that as an option uh and but i i get if if unless i'm misremembering he never really excels at either of them. He's just a spare. He's kind of like Go Go from Final Fantasy VI that way. <laughs> uh, again with the whole uh, repeating what
0: the enemy does, I guess. But yeah, he's um he's very much there to f- uh, support whatever role you feel you need additional uh, assistance with or additional support with. Uh, which I'd say
1: he's more of that than Ness is, if. This is where you're going with this. I, well, I think both of them are kind of like that. Uh, Pooh more out of
0: obligation, uh, since he's not really great at anything, he has. Uh, you're kind of forced to experiment with some of his different options. Ness, on the other hand, uh, you're allowed to, uh, or he's so good at each of the different things he does, you're allowed to experiment with uh, his options. Uh, does that make sense?
1: Ah. I suppose. I I remember a conversation that some of the people in our Discord server having with Austin about how he goes on is like, well, no one ever makes fun of me for not liking Earthbound, and someone else I don't remember who, but like a few people are saying, oh, well, that's that's because Earthbound doesn't want to be defended; it likes being bad sometimes, and you know that stuff with Pooh that you mentioned. And I remember stuff like the Monkey Caves. I love the Monkey like the Caves.
0: Game,
1: the game really does like, like it, it's just going to offend you, and it doesn't care. And I, I guess that's a little admirable, but at the same time, like on paper, that is a bad thing. That's not worth defending. Like that's very subjective, and that's very risky.
0: Well, one, I maintain that Austin is out of his mind because he prefers Sonic Heroes to Earthbound. Uh, But that's neither here nor there. Um, No, I will very much grant that the game does a lot of things that, on paper, are bad design. But I also think that it's sometimes okay to do bad design if there's something
1: you're specifically going for. Sometimes, but I feel like... Earthbound, like, gets, like, a little, like, too comfortable with that, because, ooh, it's the quirky game. Like, in No More Heroes, in the first game, you you, you run around town in between levels, and it's really empty, and I feel like it's, it's one of those things where it's not fun, because it's reflective of the kind of character Travis is in that game, because he's the kind of guy who's just a, a complete nerd, he's only going into town when he has a purpose, and I feel like that's fine because that's just one aspect of the game. That's not the, every three areas you go to, there's some weird thing. Compared to Earthbound where it's every three areas, there's some weird thing. I'm trying to think. Um, I,
0: again, I can't really disagree with you. It's um, it, There's a lot of things to the game where it... If you're re- if you're taking a pure academic uh, standpoint on it, it does it, it chooses to do an awful lot of weird things that just don't make sense or don't seem like they shouldn't really add up. But I I think that's to me that's a lot of the charm of the game as well. It doesn't mind. Uh, you, you mentioned before that uh, you you suggested that the game uh, doesn't care that it's going to offend people. Um, I kind of like to think of it as the game doesn't mind that it's... The game very much just wants to do its own thing. It wants to hit these emotional beats. Um, or it wants to go for these particular sensations. Uh, it's very much something that, um, that you just kind of... Uh, th- that you kind of feel as you go through it and... So on and so forth. Um, I don't think it really minds if you end up going. Well, sure, but I didn't really like playing this segment. And the game's like, well, that's okay. Uh, we'll just keep on going then, and we'll we'll try again later. It, it's a very humble game, I think. Um,
1: like like, it's just this tour. And it's it's just going it to hit these beats, and it's not going to stop for you. You're going to feel one way, or you're going to feel the other, or you're going to feel something else, and, like, oh, can't dwell on it, we're at the next stop. Is is that what you're trying to say? To an extent. Uh,
0: I don't want to say that it doesn't like to dwell on itself, because it certainly does. Uh, I mentioned the uh, the little tea time segments before, and uh, there, there's the whole thing with... Um, uh, as a gameplay mechanic, Ness gets homesick, so you have to call your mom from time to time. Uh, that's if the game didn't want to kind of uh, retrospect or think about itself, it wouldn't really have that as a mechanic. Uh, Earthbound Beginnings has s- something similar, where uh, Nintendo has asthma, and that's the thing you have to deal with from time to time. But that's not really a reflective thing.
1: Uh, the way well, I mean, more like is. it doesn't like to. I mean it it doesn't do it often I should amend it doesn't often like to dwell um that's a bit more fair I think um
0: it it does thrive on callbacks as well but I'd say the first uh certainly the majority of the journey uh that you're on it's presenting these new things that Ours kind of in their own world, and then only later does it come back around and start building some of it up, uh, or uh, or making some of the later stuff make sense with some of the earlier stuff. Like the segment that comes to mind is um, when you get to Tenda Village, and the you have to uh, you have to get the the Tenda a book on how to overcome shyness. Well, you happen to remember there's a library in your hometown, but you're—I think that might be around the time your library's your hometown's being invaded or something. So, uh, it's only invaded after
1: Magicant. Okay, so I, I make. But there, I, I know what you're getting at, though. That's that's around the time that the guy who has the book ends up under Stonehenge with all the star men. That was it. Yeah, yeah. So. You have to. So you have to go to Stonehenge,
0: which you were, which you were at before, and you go through this factory of Star Men, which kind of invokes a similar factory sequence from earlier on. Uh, and you've met uh, Doctor and Donuts before, and he's Jeff's father. So there's a little bit of uh, reunion there. And, uh, you get the book, it's just these, uh, again, that's when the game loops back around and starts, um, building on itself, or putting the
1: pieces, the disparate pieces together. That does, uh, yeah, the Starman base, that does feel like kind of the turning point where the game is starting to kind of buckle down and focus on its central ideas a bit more, I think. That That's at least how I see it. Let's see. Um, tr- because after that, there's nothing left to do but to go after the remaining sanctuaries and then the end of the game. Yeah. And the last few sanctuaries are right there at the end of the game. Yeah, because
0: I'm thinking through now. Because after you tend a village, you go through uh, Lumen Hall. Uh, then you're right in the Lost Underworld right away, and that leads eventually directly to uh, firespring which is the last of the year sanctuaries
1: i feel like it's also a little bit cheating that the last two are so close to each other but the fact that you're tiny makes it seem like they're farther like, <laughs> that's kind of cheating oh i i love the lost underworld though that's that was well, i mean I, I like i like it but i'm just gonna i'm i'm just saying no sure um sure uh and
0: again from a pacing perspective it's a little it's a little wonky um the game had been pretty good about uh pacing uh it it's uh, your sanctuaries up until oh uh, actually what was the
1: well up until then actually the 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 hall and then the the dinosaurs well actually I... the di- the dinosaurs are the only thing separating the last two. Actually, I'm thinking, uh, I'm trying to think, I think there's a bit of a gap
0: between um, uh, Pink Clouds, which is the sixth one, and Lumen Hall, uh, which is the seventh one, because, so it kind of gets, there's kind of a break in that for a bit as the game kind of sidetracks itself with stuff like uh, the Starman Factory segment. And then it just kind of rushes through the rest of
1: the uh, your sanctuaries. Uh, mm-hmm. I will admit that it's a kind of interesting approach in that the MacGuffins of the game, the sanctuaries, there's not really a story going on. It's literally just, yes, go to the next one, and just whatever happens, happens. And you can even go to them out of order. You can even ignore some of the sanctuaries and then just knock them all out right at the very end depending on some of them. So I feel like that is a unique approach. Uh, I I definitely agree with you. And I think that's
0: that uh, I mentioned before, it's kind of a road trip, uh, story. Uh, I think that's a big part of it is you're just kind of along for the ride and eventually, or at certain points you take a stop to, uh, visit the, your sanctuaries. Um, because the, the, the your sanctuaries exist very much in isolation from the rest of the little mini arcs you go through. Uh, when you get to uh, Tucson, uh, most of that's occupied with you're trying to find Paula. Paula's been abducted by the Happy Happiest. You have to go through Peaceful Rest Valley in order to find her. And then you do all this stuff. Uh, and right after that, you're like, oh, well, since I'm here, uh, the next year sanctuary, uh, Lilliput Steps, I think is uh, just on the other side of this cave, so I guess I'll do this while I'm here. But you don't have
1: to do it while you're there. Correct. Yeah, like, most of these, I think... Like, the first one, obviously, you, you have to do. But after that, I'm I'm trying to remember. I don't think any of the sanctuaries are strictly mandatory until the end of the game. Because c- I know... Some people have done them out of order so that they get the magicant unlocked at one of the other sanctuaries. Oh, that's interesting. Because you have to go out of your way to get to these sanctuaries, with the exception of the last two.
0: I think you have to do Giant Step, the first one, right away, because that's the trigger to uh, do the encounter with the Onet police force, who... Uh, are trying to make it in the world record book for um, barricading the most roads or something like that. Um, But so you have to do Giant Step right away. And then I think you have to do Lumen Hall uh, because it's on your way to um, uh, Firespring. So you have to do Lumen Hall before Firespring. There might also be something with... um, uh, maybe something with uh pink clouds.
1: I forget if there's a flag associated have, with that, but you have to get a certain item to unlock the cave to that one. Uh is there like this is a game where there's a lot to talk about and I don't we've already talked about for like an hour now. I don't want to talk for 3 hours. So is there any stray things before we get to the part I wanted to talk about? Uh Just one,
0: uh, one loose throwaway joke that I have written down here that I keep forgetting exists, and it just cracks me up every time I see it. Uh, so there's a segment where you're going through a dungeon, uh, excuse me, a desert, uh, and you come across a, uh, broke, a slot machine. I think there have been slot machines in previous parts of the game, but this is just a slot machine that, for whatever reason, is in the middle of a desert, but it's broken down. So the friendly Sanchez brothers have agreed to or have decided to be um, the stand-in for the slot machine. And you talk to them and they, they spin around and uh, they have num- they're wearing the numbers and, uh, and, or images or whatever, and they're the slots for you. So you talk to them and the first one says,'m uh, my name's Pancho. Uh, I'm the eldest of the Sanchez brothers. I uh, talk to the next one. I'm Pincho. I'm the younger of the Sanchez brothers. You talk to the third one. I'm Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> that that is
1: a good joke. <laughs> That's not only did they did they come back to that in Mother 3, but that that reminds me of a few other games I've played since then. Uh, not surprisingly, Undertale had a similar joke with all the Temmies, all introducing themselves as Tammy, and then the last one was named Bob. Oh, that's right, I forgot about that. It also reminds me, perhaps more coincidentally, of Wind Waker, when you have Tingle, and all his weirdly named <laughs> siblings, and then suddenly there's David Jr., who's just some guy. That he kidnapped and forced to wear the fairy outfit, as I recall. Yeah, so that, that's really weird. But... Th that is a kind of humor I like where the last one is this, wait what? hmm Yeah, the the game has some jokes that I like. It's just Yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not busting a gut. The a joke I liked was near the end, actually. Once you're all robots and the, the doctor is the doctor is saying like, Ness, this will be really dangerous and stuff, but you know, be brave, you can do it. Press the button and go back in time. If you say no, it'll just say, I understand. Jeff, you do it. <laughs> he, he just wants someone to press that button. So,
0: okay, well, the chosen one won't do it, so I'll get my son to do it.
1: And you can say no to that, and then it'll just loop back to Ness again, but it, it is a funny contingency dialogue. Sure. Uh, okay, so we touched upon it earlier, but the part of the game that uh, stuck out to me the most, probably because it's near the end, was really cool. Was Magicant. Like I've even told you how I want to do something similar to Magicant somewhere else. And I think it's really neat that you know, it, first of all, for the role it plays in Ness's empowering moment, and then it's just it. it w- I touched upon earlier Ness's filter of the world. This seems like a more blatant, if abstract, uh, example of that. Like, Magicant is kind of Ness's take on a lot of things, it seems like. Definitely. And that's, uh,
0: to your earlier points of this being seen through Ness's filter, uh, Magicant is definitely a more literal uh, variation of it. Um, From a series perspective, I actually think Magicant is interesting because it's, it was also present in Earthbound Beginnings, uh, but it served a very different role there. Uh, in Earthbound Beginnings, it's uh, just this fantasy world that you end up in um, that is uh, that it's super weird. You're walking on uh, these spirally pink clouds. There's a cat that swims in the land and so on and so forth. It's the more surreal side of, uh, of the game. That eventually becomes uh, the emotional core for the uh, tragic element towards the end of it. Uh, it's Magicant in that game is uh, more just a fantasy land that you go to. It's not uh, Nintendo's uh, Dream World. It's a, It doesn't. It's not his world. It doesn't belong to him. Uh, in Earthbound, uh, Magicant is very much Ness's uh, world. Uh, very different aesthetically, very different um, sorts of people that fill it uh, very different role that it serves um, beyond being the uh, emotional connection from the majority of the game to the end game And I, uh, I think it, it says a lot of interesting things that it that it exists mechanically in a sort of a similar way. Um, you, you also get, uh, in both games you get the flying men as temporary party members to support you as you're going through, but, uh, narrative-wise, or character-wise, they both serve very
1: different roles, and I, I just think that's super neat. I, I find it weird that the Nightmare controlling, or or at least at the core of Ness's Magic Hand is mid-boss from <laughs> way earlier. I'm not sure why that was. I do know that the late game has a real bad problem with overusing palette swap monsters. And maybe the statue looked the most devilish, so they wanted that to represent Ness's evil, but
0: Well, I sort of think that's a callback uh that's a more deliberate callback to uh the segment that he first appears in. Remember Ness's Nightmare, um uh, first appeared as the mani mani statue in moonside which was also a dream sequence but uh that was a dream sequence of a very different caliber moonside was more of a straight acid trip um that was playing on the uh, uh, it was sort of that was sort of a culmination of
1: a plot thread that had first started in onep's um yeah it's a it's an early plot thread that gets resolved then and there right you're saying that magic hant is kind of exaggerating Ness's memories of it. Uh,
0: I think I, and this is my interpretation. Um, I think Ness's nightmare is um, kind of the progression of uh, I don't know if exaggeration exactly, but it's kind of a it feels like a natural progression of the manimani Mani statue, this uh, the idea of this thing that could corrupt people. Well, if it could corrupt anyone regardless of who they were, then Ness, who's interacted with the statue, must have some sort of corruption or weakness inside him as well. Uh, So
1: Okay, that makes sense. In that case, I would say that I, I kind of would have wanted the statue to last a little bit longer, so it feels a little less out of left field, but this whole game thrives on coming out of the left field, so there's that. I do remember someone pointing out and I don't know how true it was but they suggested that the location of the statue underground in Onet would correspond to being under Pokey's house. Oh. And maybe that kind of affected them subconsciously over time? Oh, maybe. I don't know. That 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 feels there's that, that feels a little too subtle even for this game. Well, There, there's an awful lot of fan
0: theories around Earthbound that I don't really agree with because I think it's, I think a lot of them are trying to inject meaning into things that, uh, or are trying to inject literal, uh, literal meaning into a lot of things that I think you're just supposed to accept emotionally. Um, and I'm not, I don't even want to really get into it, but I can just say the final boss you've uh, you I'm sure you've been around the internet enough you know what all all the baggage that's associated with the final boss uh, a lot uh, so uh, there's a, a lot of um, assertions uh, that the final encounter with Geygas is supposed to be all of these um, really... Literal horrible things that oh you're doing this and you're going through these motions so it must mean this and I don't think it really needs to mean a lot of that. Um,
1: uh, people oh yeah I've heard I think I know what theory you're referring to where I I've heard people debunk that too so you're not alone like there are people who are thinking that that's like a reach. Hmm.
0: Um. I think. Uh, and maybe, uh, it, it's ironic, you'll you'll hear me talking a lot about my interpretations of the game, but there are interpretations I don't like of the game, and I, I, I don't know, Is that, that might not be super fair, but I think the game benefits a lot from uh, being able to have your own interpretation of it. And part of my frustration with some of the stuff that we're dancing around spelling out is that... It necessitates that the, that this interpretation be literal or be actualized. In order to buy into this theory, you have to accept that this literal thing is happening. And
1: I, I don't agree that it has to mean that. It doesn't seem like it would mesh with the M.O. of the game. Like You've described this game as this trip through the child's eyes and child logic and stuff, and... And as much as the alien is so far removed from the childish niche of the rest of the game, that just seems like... Like, Evil Knievel wouldn't make that leap. (laughs)
0: Um, I'd say that uh, the game is... Well, I'd say the game is very much about uh, growing up, I
1: think. And... And that is not something you do just because you're grown up now. Right, exactly. The thing that we're not saying. Exactly. It's, um,
0: there's, I like the final encounter with Gygus as a straight horror segment out, Uh, in contrast to everything else that's been fairly whimsical or bizarre. You have this thing that's so bizarre as to be terrifying, but I like interpreting that as as, uh, as I like interpreting that fight and overcoming that fight as being the final step in growing up, in reaching emotional maturity. That you've arguably, or or a confirmation of the emotional maturity that Ness has already reached by defeating his nightmare. Um, I don't think oh. it really needs to be anything more than that. It can just be that it, the meaning of the fight can just be that emotional resonance that
1: i get out of it okay well we have gone on for a long time so i think i would like to wrap it up and juggle how i want to present this episode whether i want to cut it into pieces or not so i think it's about time we wrap it up uh real fast and any any songs that stick out to you well just, just name a few quite a few actually um i'll try to keep this that's, fairly yeah. short though um,
0: one before i get into them i just like to say i love that the game has so many different battle themes as it does uh there's a different fight uh, yes. there's a different fight theme for each archetype of enemy uh and there's like a couple different boss themes and such and that's really refreshing uh, again that lends itself a lot to the emotional beats of the game which i really appreciate uh, but if I'm going to, uh, I'll give you my top three songs. Uh, Go for it. Number three would be Winter's White, which is the theme that plays when you're wandering around uh, Winters as Jeff. Uh, it's just kind of a very gentle uh, sound. Um Uh, Just a very gentle track. It always comes to mind when uh, I see the first snowfall of uh, the winter season or something. It's just very much kind of a uh, quiet snowfall. And that's just kind of a... I get kind of the warm fuzzies from that. Uh, Number two for me would be Boy Meets Girl, which is the theme that you first run into uh, when you get to Tucson. Uh, Again... Just very relaxing track, very comfortable, um, kind of embodies the feeling of uh, suburbia, small town for me. Um, I've uh, Back when I was first playing the game, uh, I have a fond memory of just kind of taking a nap while listening to the, the music and just kind of waking up, just feeling at peace with the world and all that. Uh, and then number one for me would be "Smiles and Tears," which is the um, which is the credits theme, also the theme of uh, also the name of the eight melodies that you're collecting uh, over the course of the game. Uh, when you go to a my san- uh, your sanctuary, you collect the music and the Soundstone, and those eight melodies become "Smiles and Tears." Not only is "Smiles and Tears" my favorite video game track of all time. It's a very strong contender for my favorite musical composition, period, of all time. It certainly helps a lot that it's a track that you build up over the course of the game, so there's that emotional connection you have to it. Uh, I spent an awful lot of time during my, uh, my first playthrough just uh, just taking a break during my journey to listen to the, uh, to the melodies that i had composed so far, uh, and there's kind of a neat effect where each there's no, there's not a clear end to each phrase, so there's constantly that feeling of oh I still need to complete this phrase, but what you have so far is very nice to listen to. So it's so it's not a, so from a mechanical standpoint, it's uh, it it's a song that grows up with you, but then to have it play at the very end of the game after you've gone through. All of these encounters, and you've gone back home, said goodbye to your friends, and are home again for the last time. Um, hearing that track uh, play over images of all the different locations that you've been to, all the different friends you've met—that in and of itself is finality. It's both—it's uh, simultaneously joyous and kind of sad. It's very bittersweet, but very comfortably bittersweet and it's in it's kind of encouraging in well this is over but now it's time to move on and i just love that that just means so much to me when i when i go through uh, a major part of my life um like when i've graduated uh, college or after going to a funeral or something it, i just kind it, of you listen use it as to kind it. of the yeah soundtrack of major moments of your life yeah it's a, To capstone, uh, that segment. And, and, I, like I said, it's my favorite video game, uh, sound,
1: uh, my favorite video game track. Okay. Um, well, uh, nothing I would say about music would compare to that at all, because I would just predictably gravitate towards the, the random fight music. Uh... So, uh, yeah, I'll just leave it on that note instead, about uh, the stuff you said. Uh, in that case, I think uh, I sh- I should actually mention, like, now what I think, now that we're at the end of the episode, is that I, I knew part of the appeal to Earthbound to people was, you know, the nostalgia, even if it's vicarious nostalgia, or different yet comparable nostalgia. I knew that was part of it, and I guess I just you know, that's just the the harm of not coming in early enough, not getting introduced to the game early enough. Not that it's not that it's, you know, irrevocably a product of its time, though it is in a number of ways. I I guess, you know, just treating the game as is kind of just, like, a ride, instead of thinking of the technicalities of the mechanics, or thinking of the bottom line of fighting aliens and stuff, is, you know, you're not supposed to do that, you're just supposed to kind of take the things as they come, and just kind of, like, live through them. Would that be right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it.
1: Hmm. Well... That's not my instinctual approach to things, but I can appreciate that, at least. I think Earthbound will just kind of join the collection of games where I appreciate what they want to do, but it's probably not going to work for me as much as it would for other people. At the very least, I like the sequel a lot, so there's that. I don't know. Uh, I uh, really like the sequel, too, but
0: for me... I think I, I think I do prefer Earthbound, just um, like, the sequel is an excellent uh, tragic piece, it's an excellent character piece, but I guess I just value the, um, just kind of the adventure and the emotional beats
1: therein of uh, Earthbound just a little bit more. See, I think this kind of mirrors my arguments with some of the others about Zelda games and how they compare to breath of the wild in that people love their experiences. They love their exploring and their sample platters. While I just want, you know, clear cut. Here's what we're doing today. Here's our story. Let's do the story. All right. I am really tired of talking about earthbound because (laughs) the nice
0: thing is there's a lot of options to try it out now. So if it sounds interesting, um, Oh, look for the Super Nintendo Classic or something.
1: Yeah, I think I think you can find it on. I think it's on like the 3DS eShop now. Oh yeah, maybe uh, the I think just the new 3DS because they did some weird thing with with that. I mean, I have that, so I'm fine. But anyway, you, you like the show? I'm on Facebook and Twitter as the Bitcast. I'm I'm more active on Twitter than on Facebook. And, uh, you know, I post pictures on Instagram, the show is on iTunes, and also Podcast One and the website, mobile app versions, uh, anything you want to say before I say bye? Thanks for listening, guys. Okay, yeah, thank you for listening, and see you on the next one.
0: Listen to Bidcast anytime on PodcastOne.com and on the Podcast One app.